Let's open our Bibles. The first Thessalonians, we've come as far as chapter three. <clears throat> you know, I, I shared with, um, I meant to share with first service, I'm sharing with second service. I, uh, you, some of you know Jackie um, and Sam, I'm praying for them. So they were a little bit sick a few weeks back. Sam went to Florida. He had come back, and um, he had a mini stroke, and so he's in the, the hospital right now. And I got to speak with him on uh, Saturday, I believe it was, or Friday. I can't remember what day. It's all they own or the other. But please be lifting up um, Sam that, you know, he's, he seems to be doing well. He seems to be cognizant. It's just got a little bit of slurred speech still. So just praying that that is removed from him, just the Lord just touches him and heals him. And then also for Jackie, I mean, I, we're going to read in this passage in chapter 3 about how faith is so contagious and how it's such an encouragement actually to, the, uh, to Pastor Paul, to the Apostle Paul. He's going to re reference uh, the, the faith that Thessalonica, the Thessalonians have, you know, their faith, these Thessalonians. And he's, he's just going to say, wow, you are, you know. And when I was talking to Jackie and I said, Jackie, is there anything we can do for you? What can we do? Not only meals, but what can we do for you? How can we help you? They're in Elizabethtown, so about 40 minutes they commute here and everything. What can we do for you? And, you know, her mom is also, she takes care of her mom. So there's just a lot on her plate. And, I, and she was like, you know, Pastor, the Lord has me in this. He's gone before us in this. And he's going to take care of every step. And I just know God's going to heal him. And just, I sat there. I was hoping to encourage her. And I just was listening to this back. And I was like, I'm encouraged. And I just wanted to share that with you all. I mean, when it's, it's, it's but, but will you please lift up Sam? Will you please lift up? you know, just diligently in your prayer time. Um, you know, he's, uh, you know, he's always been the, the strong one in the family that way where he, you know, he was that, you know, everybody relied on him, Jackie and different things like that. He was able to do those things. But now he, he finds himself on the other end of the need um, that way. And I think that in itself is sometimes almost harder than the mini stroke is to, you feel bad because other people, you know, are t he's in the hospital. They're doing all these things. They're not letting him sleep, you know, because they keep poking him, prodding him, and, and they're doing their job. They're taking care of him. But please just um, please be praying for him because I know God's not done. That, that chapter's not over, and there's other things to be done, and the Lord's using him. And I just, I just can't wait to, uh, when he gets back, I can't wait to say, Stan, Sam, just stand up and share, and we just get to clap and just rejoice because he's healed, and that's my, my earnest prayer. Well, as we've come to chapter 3 here, we, we left Paul with longing to see those in Thessalonica. His desire and his heart's desire to be with them, to, uh, to see their faces again. You know, he will get back there. We, we talked about that last week. But just that heart of just longing to see his, his brothers and sisters. If you look back to verse 17, he says, But we, brethren, having been taken away from you for a short time in presence, not in heart, he makes clear that he loves them, has not stopped thinking about them, endeavored more eagerly to see your face with great desire. Therefore, we wanted to come to you, even I, Paul, time and again. I'm so glad he said that. Even I, Paul, like, hey, you know, this happens to the apostles, huh? This happens to Christians. This happens to us. He says, but Satan hindered me. And we talked a little bit about that and what that means and the reality that it was for a time. A hindrance is not a victory for Satan. Please understand that. It's simply a hindrance. It is what it is. It's for a period of time. There's something that, you know, spiritual warfare, and he's drawing the attention to, the, to those in Thessalonica, that spiritual warfare is real. And often Lucifer or Satan can try to hinder, but he's never effective at the complete mission. Therefore, it's a failure in all, in all regards. But it's through those moments of where you're going through that hindrance that you're like, Lord, I'm not hearing from you the way I want to. I'm not seeing you go before me the, the way I'm accustomed to. I'd like to see this open door. And, I, and as mentioned last week, we wouldn't have maybe, we wouldn't have First Thessalonians. This letter wouldn't have had a reason to be written. I mean, this is amazing to me that this is preserved for us. And how many of you saw just the news this week where they continue to find more um, manuscripts and parts of the manuscripts? Again, beyond contestation, they keep finding more and more and more. And it's, I mean, the archaeologists and all those people that are digging and finding these things. And it's, you know, 2000, and this is an even older manuscript than, than the Dead Sea original, original ones they thought they had found. So they keep pulling these things. And, it, and it's just like, it just, once again, God's just like, hey, I'm here. I love you. My words, 
genuine. I have it for you. You know, trust and obey. There's no other way. You know, I, you start singing, you know, you're just like, wow, you know. And, and I just can't help but just I love to see how God goes before us. And, and I love to see how Paul says, then therefore we wanted to come to you. And, and he makes it clear. And even though it looks like there's this hindrance, God had a bigger and better plan than what Satan could ever do. And Satan didn't even realize it, that by this hindrance, God uses this in a way to turn around and bring the gospel to thousands of people, words of encouragement to Europe, to Thessalonica, to that area. And it blows me away. And sometimes, I don't know if you guys realize this, and I'm not trying to be overly sensitive in this, but I I please, 2,000 years later, we are gathered here today. We're gathered here this morning. We're opening our Bibles. We're reading the Word of God. It is supernatural. God breathed. And we are reading about this man who was a real man, who loved these people in Thessalonica. And God spoke through him, through him, inspiration of the Holy Spirit to write these down. And not just for those in Thessalonica, which would have been more than enough, but for you and I. For you and I today. And it just blows me away. Like, Lord, there, there is such a grand purpose in everything you're doing. There's never mistakes that way. There, there, there is no coincidence. He says, for what is our hope, our joy, our crown of rejoicing? He's talking about them. You are. Isn't it not even you in the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ at his coming? For you are our glory and our joy. And we all know people that are our glory and our joy. I'm so encouraged by all of you. You are my glory and my joy. To see you continue to press in, deepen in your faith, read the word of God, grow. Yes, I know you go through such persecution and affliction and suffering. I know you guys do. I, I, I hear about things that are going on in your life, whether it's assistant pastors, elders, or you come to me dry. I know you're going through things, quite honestly, that would shake me. And I always look to you and your faith. They're so much stronger. You're such an encouragement to me. And the way God continues to press you and you just press into Jesus and you, it's wonderful. And you bring great glory and joy, not only to Christ, but to the whole bride of Christ. As we all gather, we are so in love with you guys. And we know you're in love with us and we are all in love with Jesus. And that brings us to our passage. So let's bow our head, we'll pray and we'll begin here in chapter three. Father, as you just overheard, we love you. That's why we we gather in your name, we gather in your word, and we want to be just blessed by your anointing here this morning and your word going forward. I pray, God, you'll speak mightily into our hearts, our minds, Lord. And I pray, Lord, as you've got us in this passage on affliction and suffering, and Lord, there's no coincidence. You, You want us to understand these things are part of the Christian life, but Lord, you also understand, want us to understand the victory, the abounding love that will come out of all of this, the growing love. So God, I just thank you. I thank you that you are so gentle with your children, that that even in spite of the difficulty, Lord, you're so gentle that you come alongside us and you hold us ever so tight that we are never going through anything alone without you. And I am just so forever grateful for that, God. I know we are as, as your children, just believers in Christ. So I pray, anoint your word here this morning. Let me get out of the way, Lord, and you speak because we all want to hear what your spirit has to say. We ask this in your holy name, Jesus Christ, and all God's people pray. Amen. Let's look at chapter 3, verse 1, as he says, therefore. It's because of these things, understanding of these things, longing to see them. He says, therefore, when we could no longer endure it. Did you see that? When we could no longer, have you ever waited? You know, I was sharing with first service, you know, my, I make a trip back to Rochester, make a trip home. My father lives, a, you know, he, he's with, you know, he's, he's dead now, but he would, he would turn around and you, he had a house up on a hill kind of thing and you drive up and it was about a five hour commute for us to get back from here to, to Rochester. And I remember I, you know, we'd lease the kids, we'd all get in the car and we'd start the trek to visit. And I'm within 30 minutes. Are you here yet? No, dad, dad, I love you. We're not here yet. An hour or two later. Are you here? Where are you? Tell me what's, what road or highway are you on? I need to know exactly where. Okay. Now. Dad, we're, 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 we're near the Piggly Wiggly, Dad. We're, we're you know, whatever. You know. And, and again, an hour later, where are you at? Are you, what's going on? Are you okay over there? Dad, we are obeying the speed limit. Cruise control is set. We will get there when we get there. <laughs> but, uh, 
You know, he, he, why? Because he was so excited. He couldn't wait to see his boys. Ah, who am I kidding? He couldn't wait to see the grandbabies. He was so excited. They were going to come in, oh, you know, open his arms and give the hugs and kisses. And, oh, man, he would just get so excited. He, he, he just, I couldn't stand it. I couldn't wait to, you know, he'd get over to the, and then I'd be driving up, you know, because there was a school across the way. You'd drive up the driveway, and he, the phone would be down. He'd be right out on the, um, it was on the second story. He had like double doors you can walk, and he'd be right out on like what would be like a deck, a balcony kind of thing. And he'd be right on the deck. He'd walk, I, like as if he's watching the exact trail. I'm taking every detail and just almost longing, just longing. Couldn't wait. If you had that experience with when a friend's going to come visit somebody you love, I, I hope it's not when it's a friend that you haven't seen in just a long time, but when somebody's walking through the door anytime that love and that desire to, oh, and you're just with them in that koinonia and the fellowship. You can't wait to see them and be with them and that excitement. and uh, That is what Paul is describing as an apostle, but also as a pastor, a, a father in the faith that he experienced for this church. And he had missed them. He hadn't seen them in months and he had longed to see them again. He couldn't wait. And, and that's when, when I read this and he says, you know, I could no longer endure it. He's, I couldn't handle it. It was like torture to me to think that I couldn't be with you and I want to be with you. That's the kind of emotion. He's a real man that the Pastor Paul was having, that love and desire. Now, I'm going to ask us all a question this morning, and I, I sort of asked for service similarly. Do we have that desire to be together with one another? Do we have that desire to be with the body of Christ? That excitement that I miss, I haven't seen, I, I have that desire for, for Sam and Jackie right now. They're really on my heart right now. I can't wait to be with them. Can't wait to see them, right? I can't, I can't wait. I can't wait to be with you. I can't wait for every Wednesday and Sunday. And I don't even care. It could be Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday. So I, I just want to be with you. I enjoy being like-minded. I enjoy walking with you through the scriptures. I, I just love you. I want to be with you. I don't want to be anywhere else. I don't want to do anything else. What a great privilege we have. Do you have that same heart? And, and do you have that for your family members, your loved ones, your, 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 your extended family, people that you work with? And do you have that love, that desire? Because this is what it looks like. This is what it looks like when we let God and that agape love, unconditional love, when we set it forth and we surrender, it's beautiful and it can't, it can't be contained. It can't, it's not something you, you hold and you keep back. It's, it's something that's given freely. And every time I read this, I, I come back to this and I'm like, wow, Lord, give me that heart. Give me a heart like Paul's. Give me a love, that unconditional agape love like you, Jesus, have for your people. I love that. I like that. He says, we thought it good to be left at Athens alone. He's, he's reminding them, because remember, Timothy had come back. When they were in Athens, Paul, because he was longing to see them, sent Timothy over. So he kind of was alone at that point and said, okay, we'll go it. We'll go it alone. And he was so, can't wait. I can't handle it. I can't stand it. Go, Timothy, please see how they're doing. And when we're going to read on, it wasn't just like, are they okay and healthy? I mean, that's great. But are they wavering? Are they steadfast in their faith? Had they had these circumstances that were coming up and causing them to, you know, and, and it's understandable why Paul's feeling that way because it's a young church. It's a young church. At, at minimally three weeks, right? Three Sabbaths, we read in the book of Acts. I believe closer to probably two to three months. Okay, that's just UB brains. That's my belief. But as we read this, he had been away from them and he, he, are they staying the course? Look what he says. And they sent Timothy, our brother. I love that. That's how Paul sees this. That's how God sees us. We are brothers and sisters in Christ. There, there is no difference. There's, it's not, well, you're, you have this blood type and I have this blood type. I was born of, you know, this person or you're born. No, no, no. You're a born again believer in Christ. You are a brother and sister. Look to your left and look to your right here. Literally, go ahead, do it. Look to your left and look to your right. Do it. That's your brother and sister. Jesus defined it that way when he said very clearly, he says, I tell you who my brother, sister, mother, father is. Who were they? Those that do what? The will of my father. 
That was how God defined it. Those that are born again believers. Those that turn around and seek God. And yet today we, we somehow, we think, we, we put up these sort of partitions. Like we have an immediate family. Like it's just our wife and our kids. Like somehow that becomes a silo. And then we go beyond that silo to where we have the grandbabies and we have, you know, these, and you, 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 those circles get drawn, don't they? If we're being honest here, please be honest. We draw those circles. And then it becomes, well, our friends. And then it becomes, you know, the neighborhood. And then it, you won't find that in the Word of God at all. There are no silos. There's nothing that gets propped up to delineate or separate that way. No, we're brothers and sisters. And that's how God has defined it. We are connected. That's why I think it's so hard for Jesus to understand when another Christian or another brother or sister wrongs another brother. Say, why would we even do such a thing? That's your brother. That's your sister. When, when a young couple turn around and, you know, we just saw Aubrey. They kept themselves pure. They did everything right, Aubrey. But when they try to induce somebody to, you know, fool around or do something inappropriate sexually, you know, that's your sister in the Lord. Like, why would you cause her to stumble? Or why would... She calls you to, like, why would that happen? There's no reason. Are you looking to God first, or are you looking to yourself and your own will first, your own nature? And then the second thing, he uses Kai, he says, and, and he says, minister. He, he's drawing it out. That's the word we get for what? Deacon, right? That's gender neutral. There's no deaconess. You've heard that term? You're, you're deacon and deaconess. There's no such thing in the Greek. You are a deacon. There is no feminine or masculine use of that. It's deacon. You're a deacon. You're a servant. He was defined as a brother, a believer in Christ, and a servant. And it's just not a servant of anyone. No, he's a servant of God. That's how it's defined. You are a servant of God. And we know, again, 1 Peter 2, you all are servants. I'm a servant, aren't we? We're a royal priesthood, a precious people. And I like that because it makes it very clear what we're here to do, why we're here, why we live. All of your tent making, that's what you do for a living and things like that. That's all to serve a purpose so you can eat and you can, you know, thank God get dressed and, you know, I see you with clothes on. These are good things. And then, and then you turn around and you, you go and you, you go into the ministry field wherever he, he puts you, and you serve him. Well, I'm in a truck, and I drive alone. Oh, no, you're not, because you make stops, and you drop things off. You pick things up. There are people always watching and around you, and you're giving an opportunity every step of the way. There's never, it's never a solo deal. You and Jesus are a multitude. So he goes through, and he says that, that he's a minister of God and our fellow laborer. Please recognize this. This is work. This isn't something that you work up and it's playtime. No, no, no. This is work. If there's an intention of a heart to do these things, you know, you wake up, you pray, you covet these things in prayer, you bring them before the Lord, then you act. But, you know, I've, met, I've been fortunate to meet a lot of brilliant people in my life. I've been very, very fortunate. And, you know, it's almost like intellectualism or humanism testifies against itself. Let me explain what I mean by that. Because some of the most brilliant people that I've met recognize, by just sheer simple logic, it's, it's beyond contestation, that they don't possess all of the code. Do, do you understand? I'm, I'm sort of speaking software term. If I create a program and I write the program, I'm the author of the program, it requires someone to write all of the code, even if it's artificial intelligence or you're building it in or you're going to have it react or do something. I had to put something in it for the code logically to be able to preconceptions, understand notions, how I relate to the world, how things work around me. I can't define that in, my, in of myself, right? That's pride to try to do that. No, I have to, <laughs> I don't possess that. That's why we have the word of God because it's God's direct conversation with you and I, because we don't possess that, you know, no matter how much we try. And again, some of those brilliant people I know, they come to that logical conclusion because it's simple logic. You come to that. You can't possibly possess all of that information within oneself. 
I give the simple example of um, animals. Where is he going with this? Bear with me. You think of animals, right? We understand even through what they would say of evolutionary study or DNA, different things like that, that when you have a wolf and that wolf and that species breaks down, right, and you have dogs and different things, that dog can procreate again, okay, but it's not going to produce a wolf, is it, unless it has relations with the wolf, right? I, I, I don't know where to go with this. You get the point, right? Unless that happens, they're not going to have a wolf. Why can't it be reverse engineered? Because everything in creation testifies to God. And it's very, very simple. Like, I don't care who you are. Eventually, if you're, if you're I don't mean this in a way, if you're bright enough and you get to that place, then you can simply understand that and reverse the code and look at it and go, it's always been right in front of me. There are some very quintessential things to understand. We are servants, and that's where it begins. We're not anything else we try to proclaim ourselves to be. We are first and foremost, as born-again believers in Christ, brothers and sisters in Christ. One. Secondly, we are ministers, understanding that that is the calling and purpose of our lives. It's non-negotiable, right? We can either fight it, we can wrestle with it, but it's who we are and it's who he is. And then third, this work requires intention. It's a labor. It's not something that just happens. It doesn't just propagate out of nowhere. No, it requires intention and a surrendered heart. As we study these things in Scripture, we, we come to these understandings that, that this is what makes up, as we define it, the Christian. He surrendered to Christ, right? He's intentional about the calling and the work in his life. He understands these things and how they coexist around him. He understands his presuppositions, but he understands and yields to the one true God. And so Paul, and I mean, Paul, brilliant in the way he writes because he understands these things. He comes back out and he says that, He's a fellow laborer. I'm sending him to you because he knew that there was the capacity or capa you know, the potentiality for him, for any Christian to, to waver, to have those moments where we doubt our faith, right? You're, you're looking at me. Please, you, somebody, you all agree, right? We understand that. Lord, help me in my unbelief. We pray these things, right? There's nobody that ever, uh, I got it all the time. No, 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 no. I don't care how long you've been walking with Jesus, no. That's, that's a lie from the pit of hell. That's, he'll use that to attack you, to make you think that there's something wrong with you. There's nothing wrong with you. You see, he goes back to what the truth is that is the author of all of this. One, it's Jesus Christ, and it's the gospel of Christ. Do you see that with me? He says, in the labor, in the, and it could have been in the what. Could have been anything, definite article. He uses a definite article there. You study grammar, English, you understand what a definite article is saying. The what. It could have been anything. Could have been self. No, he says, it's the gospel of Christ. This is a man who studied under Gamaliel. This is a man who studied a Pharisee of Pharisees, highly educated, in that time, one of the brightest and most brilliant men that walked the earth. And this is the not only logical conclusion, but this is what he came to in faith as well, because faith is only as good as what you place it in. But it's certainly never a blind faith. And why does he give us? Why does God allow it to be this ingredient? Why does he put it together this way? Because he could have done it in so many different ways, right? We could have been robots where he pre-programmed that and you simply understood the original programming. No. Because even through those steps of faith, even through those difficulties... You know what it actually does? And this is what Paul's doing with them. When we come to this understanding and we come to this surrender, it actually establishes you. It actually takes your worry and doubt and it begins to establish you because you realize you are part of something far grander and bigger than what you yourself could possibly even understand and possess. What's that do? That word established, the reason I'm bringing that out, it's an old 
Greek idiom when he's using it, Paul, like this. To the first century Christian that would have read this, they would have known what he was saying. You know a dog tail, how it wags? You've seen dogs, they wag, you know, like that. What he's actually saying here in the Greek and the idea behind it, this idea of establishing it is that you are not shaken. You are not like a tail which can flip-flop or go back and forth. No, you're grounded. You're secure. You're steadfast. You're unmovable. You're unshakable. You're not vacillating between positions because that's not God's desire for us. God's desire is that we would know truth and abound and abide in it. But that's work. But that's work. He's saved. We must believe in spite of our circumstances. And he says that he encourages you concerning your faith. Because that's exactly what it does. It, it, it's faith, and, faith to faith. It, it, we've been through difficult things in our lives, right? Most of us here, if you're a Christian for longer than a week. <laughs> been to those points where you're like, can't keep going on. Lord, don't know how I can do this. Don't want to live. Don't know what I want to do. Right? We've, all, we've all been there. Please don't. We never want to belittle or pretend that we haven't come to those places. That would be a lie. The reality is when we get in those places and we get to the lowest point in our lives where we cannot actually help ourselves, we begin to let go, we begin to surrender, we begin to acknowledge. And it, what does it do? It draws our faith and completes it in some ways. Because we really, we recognize that everything shouldn't be working out. You know, I, I joke, Lisa and I joke, as a, like we go through our budget, we go through the bills. It shouldn't work. Have you ever been in that circumstance? You know what's coming in, you know what's going on, you got it, and it just shouldn't work. And yet month after month, it does. And it always works. And it's like, Lord, how are you doing this? He's establishing my faith. You know, you just get down on your knees, you just cry, you hold hands, you and this is, what, this is what Paul is describing. This is, this is what he's describing that he so desperately wants for his younger brothers and sisters. How many of you are older brothers and sisters in here? Anybody older brothers and sisters? Raise your hand. Go ahead, don't be shy. Older brothers and sisters? Okay, you have younger brothers and sisters. Do you not go before and try to, we use the word disciple, but maybe you might say come alongside, try to help them, different things they've gone through? Point them in the right direction. Hey, I've been there. Let me encourage you maybe. I'm not saying that they listen or not. That's a totally different. <laughs> but we have the propensity, right? We have the capacity to come and come alongside and help, right? And why do we do that? Because we just want to mess with them? <laughs> maybe. I'm the youngest. I think my brothers wanted to mess with me. I will go on record with that. No, because they love me. Because that's real love, and they don't want anything bad to happen to me. They want me to, to have uh, an easier, if I can say it that way, an easier path, not to have to repeat some of the mistakes that they've had, the pain they've experienced. Paul has been beaten on several occasions, almost to death. He's been left. I mean, all these things that have happened on his missionary journeys, and he's looking at his younger brothers and sisters in the faith, and he's going, I know it's coming. Now, he's not going to turn around and give it to them all at once, because you know what? They're gone, man. They're out. He's not going to do that. No. He lovingly and gently, as the Holy Spirit tells he shares more and more. This is, what's, this is what it's like. There is oppression and affliction. There is difficulty and hardship within the Christian walk. There is work and labor. But it's the most rewarding and victorious thing you're going to ever be a part of in your entire life. It actually gives meaning where there was no meaning. He goes on and he says it's concerning your faith, right? Because, again, God doesn't want us confused. He doesn't want us vacillating like that, like a tail on a dog. Verse 3, that no one should be shaken by these afflictions. Whoa, whoa, whoa. So now we're getting even more detail what Paul's worried about for these younger brothers and sisters. That because of the afflictions that are coming, it can cause them to do what? Be shaken. Now, I know it was 2,000 years ago, but do you think that can happen today? 
Do you think we can be shaken in our faith today? Or was it just the Thessalonians? For you yourselves know that we are appointed to this. Paul makes a very strong point. Again, whether you believe he was only there three Sabbaths or Shabbats, or whether you believe he was there for a couple months, either way, Paul, when he spent his time in the early Christian church, he conveyed verbally, and obviously even in writing now, as he's writing this letter to encourage them, that this is not foreign. This shouldn't be foreign to you. This is not odd. This difficulty you're experiencing, this is not odd to you. There's nothing, you're not mental. There's nothing wrong with you. Actually, this is a part of being a soldier for Jesus because there's a war going on and it's a spiritual battle. And that's what he's communicating. And, and, and you know, I, look, maybe somebody's sitting here this morning saying, Pastor, I, what are you talking about? I, I read these same passages, but I don't get what you're getting out of this. You're telling me this context, but maybe you're isogeting, reading into, mirror reading. Maybe you're just mirror reading into this. Maybe you got it wrong. Okay, let's turn to John chapter 16, please. I love to let the Lord string pearls. I love to let the word of God speak for itself rather than man's wisdom. Um, and I love when Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, our Messiah, has told us these things and gone before us. He's doing this to protect our hearts and our minds to ready us for the days ahead. Not just in Thessalonica 2,000 years ago, but even in the lives we're living today. And there's a reason for this. Because, and I say this sort of tongue-in-cheek in first service, everybody laughed. I said, I know it's hard for you to relate to persecution, affliction, and suffering as Christians today. And, you know, it doesn't happen to us anymore in the 21st century. And everybody's like, ha, 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 ha because we see it all the time. As a matter of fact, we just heard that the gentleman that was in Canada that was put in prison, he just got released. Praise God. I've been praying so desperately that he would. The gentleman that was in Turkey, you know, for two years and he was uh, put in um, solitary confinement, he was released. The gentleman that was on Iran, who was there for up to, I think it was 10 weeks or more in solitary confinement, didn't even open a Bible in Iran just because he was a born-again believer in Christ, put in solitary confinement. Talked a little bit about that last week. You read it in the voice of the martyrs. This year, we have our East Coast Pastors Conference. You know, we get together, Pastor Joe and Philly, and we put it together, we go to Northeast Maryland. We actually have the gentleman that was put in solitary confinement in Iran. He's coming, and he's going to speak to us from Iran, the guy that was put. He's going to come and speak to the pastors. Why do you think he might do that? You think maybe that's an Apostle Paul moment? Suffering, persecution, be ready, Christian. Not to hurt you, not to, to frighten you, to prepare you. That you don't vacillate. That you're not shaken in like a dog's tail. The Lord coordinated all of that. I can't, I, I, when I come back, I'll share it with you, his testimony. I'll share, I'll share the things he's... I can't wait to meet the guy, hug the guy. I can't wait to meet my brother and hug my brother after everything he's been through. But, but look at chapter 16 here as I was waiting for you to turn there. You're there. Now look at look what it says. Jesus speaks about the coming rejection. If you back up in verse 26, but when the helper comes, whom I shall send to you from the Father, the spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will testify of me. And you also will bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. These things I have spoken to you that you should not be made to what? Stumble. There it is again, the idea of vacillating, that you would trip, that you wouldn't be solid, secure, foundation, right? That that wouldn't happen to you. That they will put you out of the synagogues. He didn't say they might. No, they will put you out of the synagogues. Yes, the time is coming that whoever kills you will think that he offers God service. Our government's doing some very interesting things today, and so are some of the governments of the world. And they're all doing it, and they, they love to use the name of the God. And, and, and at the end, what they say, oh, and, and blessed be our God, or unto God, and it's, what God are you talking about? Because the God that I know, the God that you know, the, the God of the scriptures, does not say murdering babies is ever a good idea. He, he's not turning around and saying and condoning these things that you are trying to politically maneuver to gain votes or whatever you're doing, that's not the same God I know. 
So why are you taking my name and my God, your God, and speaking and uttering it in a way that you have no idea what you're saying? You're actually proving that you're not of the Lord because the very things you say in Scripture completely are the opposite. You're, you're making it very simple for us to see the wheat and the chaff. Well, Jesus Christ told us that there's people that are going to actually think they're doing godly service and they're going to kill you and I. They're going to, they're going to kill the Christians. Acts chapter 9, verse 16, please. He's speaking to the church. You remember he wrote this to Ephesus. He was in that church for three years, right, Timothy? Chapter 3, verse 12. I'm going to back up to actually verse 10. But you have carefully followed my doctrine, manner of life, purpose, faith, long-suffering, love, and perseverance. Again, that word love is agape. Persecutions, afflictions, which happened to me at Antioch, Iconium, Lystra. What persecutions I endured, and out of them all the Lord has what? Delivered me. Paul is even remembering this and recounting, and you know what he's doing? He's actually praising God. He's actually praising God right now. Yes, and I, all who desire to live godly, yes, and all, excuse me, I should have said I, yes, and all who desire to live godly in Christ, Jesus will what? Suffer persecution. So how does that work when the faith and prosperity gospel tells you you're to inherit on work? They can't. They're mutually exclusive. The likes of guys like Benny Hinn, Joel Steele. How, do, how does that work when Jesus is telling us through divine revelation that there will be suffering and persecution and yet at the same time, there's something wrong with our faith if we don't have a jet or multiple jets, some of these guys. They're mutually exclusive. You can't, you can't somehow try to make chocolate mashed potatoes out of these, right? You know that you like chocolate, right? You like mashed potatoes, but you don't want chocolate mashed potatoes, do you? It's the same idea. You, you can't intermingle these things like that. Jesus made it simple. He says, you can't have two masters. You'll hate one and you'll love the other. It's very, very simple. But he wants us to understand these things. He says, but evil men and imposters will grow worse and worse deceiving and being deceived, but you must continue in the things which you have learned and been assured of, what? Of knowing from whom you have learned them and that from childhood you have known the holy scriptures. That's it right there. It's the word of God, which are able to make you wise for salvation. Notice he didn't say, it's all of my degrees. Look, there's nothing wrong with school and education. But Paul, the most brilliant man at that time, didn't fall back on the greatest education he had under Gamaliel. It wasn't about intellect and logic. Again, you, you realize that like the smartest people aren't the people that can repeat the process over and over again. Like that doesn't make you smart. As a matter of fact, you go into the military, you take an ASVAP test. Some of you in the military, you took ASVAP tests. You understand what I'm talking about? You do an ASVAP test, mathematics, things like that. These are not the people that we say are the, you know, they're, they're smart people, but these are not the people that we go, oh, because you're taking two plus two is four. Two plus two is always gonna be four, isn't it? It's an absolute. Mathematical formula, I reapply it, right? It's when we take that and we bring it to the, it's when we create, when we, when we add, when we do something. They, whoa. There's a brother in the fellowship here. He, he talked in my office. He teaches mathematics. He's a very smart guy. And he, you know, I said, well, you know, these things. And we were talking and he says, you know, but my real passion is to take this formula I've been working on. I'd love to see it come to this place. I'd love to see it do, you know. He's talking about furthering something. Not just two plus two. You get what, I, what I'm getting at, and, and I just want us to understand, is that intellectualism and logic will only take you so far. There's nothing. But what he's saying to you is he's saying everything you need is found right in this book. Everything you need to understand life and your place in this world, in the world, not of the world, Right? is found in the Holy Scriptures. And these were given to Timothy from birth, from his young age, to study, to understand, because of a faithful mother and a faithful grandmother that he had. And that's why we study them, right? He goes on and he says that 
they're able to make you wise for salvation because that's exactly what they do through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. That's a natural desired outcome. All scripture is given by inspiration of God, which is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. Right? Again, I've had the privilege to meet some of the most brilliant men in the world when I was at my time at Microsoft and working with very, very sharp men all around the world, presidents and stuff of different companies, CEO. I really did. I was very blessed. And I'll tell you, I, I, I once uh, had a, a conversation with the guy that worked on the, the microwave, the microwave technology, right? And every scientist or researcher that I've talked to that, that really I would consider, wow, this person's brilliant. They took something, they understood it, and they furthered the science or they furthered their believer because they got to a point in their understanding that they could no longer argue logically that there's an existence of God because they don't possess it within themselves. And those that could not do that, many times either end up, no sono contento, right? They, they, they end up down. They end up not complete because they're trying to deny the existence of the one true God. And yet all of creation and everything around us tells us that. And, and so we see these things over and over again in Scripture. And if that be true, then so also must be every other part of Scripture which God says that there will be affliction and persecution, but that it's not in vain or for vanity, that it actually produces, it actually produces faith, it actually it secures and, and grows our faith through those difficulties and hard times. Last passage we'll look at in regards to this is 1 Peter chapter 2, please. For it would have been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than to having known it turn away from the holy commandments delivered to them. He's, he's going through and he talks about, you know, uh, false teachers. I'm actually reading 2 Peter because that's a good pa passage of Scripture too. But 1 Peter 2.21, let's go to instead. For to this you were called because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us as an example that you should follow his steps. So Jesus himself says that, that, that because of his suffering. He was an example for you and I. Why would we think it's anything different? After all, as we read in Ephesians, right, chapter 4, what does he say? That we're being conformed into the likeness and image of Jesus Christ. Well, certainly that means that his examples would be appropriate for us as well. He's equipping, what, you and I, workers, ministers, Right? That's what he does. That's what church does. That's what reading the Word of God does. It actually educates us. It, it enlightens us. It shows us these things. And then we have to try to recalibrate our minds or let we can surrender and let God do that. It's not a blind faith is my point as we've been studying this. And certainly Paul, as he's going to these younger children, he's referring to them this way, and he's warning them these things. The children in the faith, they were young Christians in this young church. He's telling them not to be shaken that way. And I like that. Verse 4 in First uh, Thessalonians chapter 3. For in fact, we told you before when we were with you, we would suffer tribulation just as it happened to you, or just as it happened, and you know, right? Again, he was talking about how it's a required course. For this reason... When I could no longer endure it, I sent to know your faith, lest by some means the tempter had tempted you and our labor might be in vain. You see, that's also part of the battle and what Paul was worried about. He knew that left to themselves without Christ, without that encouragement, without pointing them back to the fact that this is normal, that suffering, I mean, if you're saved longer in a week, you know, one of the biggest disservices we can do to a, a new believer if they get saved is come to that new believer and be like, it's all honeymoon. You know, it's all peaches and cans. It'd be great every, every day. Because you know what? It doesn't take but a week. And they're going to turn around and go, you know what? I feel worse now than when I accepted Christ a week ago. What is going on? I thought I would get better. I tried to do it God's way for a whole week, right? Or a couple years, you know, young people, a couple years. No, What? I tried to do it this way. They were, they were going through. And 
we, 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 we don't realize there's an enemy that is absolutely trying to take down, trying to take down the believer. And they're trying to convince them that, you know, there's difficulty and this temptation. And, says, and that you might, what, lay, our labor, Paul and those disciples, their labor might be in vain. Verse 6, but now that Timothy has come to us from you and brought us the good news. Remember, he was in Athens at this time. The letter comes, you know, he sends this letter based on what he heard from Timothy. He's writing this letter. Of your faith and your love and that you always have a good remembrance of us. Can you imagine hearing that, Paul? After all of the trouble, Christian trouble that he caused in Athens and in Thessalonica and in Philippi, he probably thought, I love you guys, but I, I don't know if you love me the way I love you because of all the problems I brought to, that, brought to that city because of the namesake of Jesus. But you know what's so beautiful and pure? He says, we, we, we received word through Timothy that you love us the same way and you want to see us too. I bet that just absolutely comforted Paul's heart. What a word of encouragement, right? Even though pain, you know, Paul went through that pain, even though there was difficulty, lives were changed. And that's why we don't need to hide the pain and the difficulty we go through life. That shouldn't be hidden as though it's something just for us. No, those around us can be encouraged by that. Encouraged by that. Therefore, brethren, well, he goes on to say, greatly desiring to see us as we also to see you. Therefore, brethren, in all our affliction and distress, again, a real man going through real trials and circumstances, we were comforted concerning you by your what? Your faith. Therefore, brethren, in all our affliction and distress, we were comforted concerning you by your faith. You see, that's what comforted and that's what encouraged is that it actually built Paul's and Apostle's faith because he was able to turn around and see this. His faith was strengthened, right? They were encouraged by this. And that's exactly how it works. That's why I don't ever rob anyone the opportunity to experience the pain, to come alongside you, because as you go through that difficulty, their faith as well is encouraged and built up. For now we live, if you stand fast in our Lord, for what thanks can we render to God for you? For all your joy, of which we rejoice for your sake before God, night and day, praying exceedingly that we may see your face and perfect what is lacking in your face. He, he's saying, I want to finish their teaching, their discipleship. What else can we, can we convey, share with you, help you? We want to we continue to pour into you that way. And we'll close with these last three verses for chapter three. Now, may our God, this is his prayer and prayer for them, and Father himself and our Lord Jesus Christ direct our way to you. And may the Lord make you increase and abound. We're going to see this word circle abound in your Bible. We're going to see it again in chapter four, verse one. It means growing to abound, not staying the same. You're maturing, maturation process of the faith. You will continue to grow. He's going to talk about abound again. But he doesn't say that we abound, again, in our, our higher accolades. He doesn't say we abound in, in what we've been able to do as far as, you know, um, drawing people even to ourselves. Or to, he doesn't go back to his scholastic or scholarly work or the academy. No, the thing that we abound in is love. That's where it all begins. And that's where it all ends unconditional agape love. He says, you will abound in love. I love that passage. One another and all. Please notice that. We're usually pretty good. Self-love. Oh, man, we, that's, we don't need help with that, right? I don't need help with that. Self-love. I'm, I'm like a pro. But the minute it comes to loving others, right? Others focused. Oh, that's pretty heavy. And then when he says all, oh, what about your enemies? What about that gentleman that was in Iran that turned around and outstretched his arm to a guy that hated him and beat him and tortured him, put him in solitary confinement and was leaving him for dead? To that man, he reached out his hand unconditionally and loved him. And that man was one to Jesus Christ because of that love. It's not... It's easy to love people that love us. 
But we're called to love those even that hate us. Just as we do to you. He says, hey, we're not hypocrites. We're living this out. You know, keep giving as far as your heart to the Lord. Let God pour it in. You continue to mature. And then what's that produce? You're going to continue to grow. You're going to abound. You're going to grow in love. Why is that a surprise? It shouldn't be. Galatians chapter 5 tells us that love is one of the what? Fruits of the Spirit. Do you see that? So cool. So, that he may establish your hearts. Look at what he wants to do here. Even in our ability to love others and be others focused and do these things to obey Christ, we still get our socks blessed off. Do you see that? We still get our socks blessed off here. It's amazing. He says, so that he may establish your hearts blameless, that you're without blame. In holiness, what does that mean? Holy, the idea of God's holiness, set apart, that we are set apart, right? Before our God and Father, at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with all his saints. Please pay attention to that. Have you noticed that every single chapter, at the end of each chapter, chapter 1, 2, and 3 that we've been in, he keeps referencing back to the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He wants this church in Thessalonica to understand what they're talking about. First, he's talking about not living with any guile, but to be living holy, right? So he closes the chapter with this and describes what produces holiness? And that's the imminent return of Jesus, awaiting for our coming return of our Lord. That's, that's how we do it. When we have our eyes on Jesus and expecting for that imminent return of Christ, then we begin to live holy because we are set apart. We're not living like the world does, right? That's what it produces in us. Ultimately, if I can use a simple word, hope. Hope. We have hope compared to all those that are walking around and I think about our young people today. I see these things going on, and boy, the world is really trying to steal their hope. They're, they're, the teens, as they get together, they pray for each other. I mean, they go through such difficult times. We just had a leadership meeting, and, you know, they were sharing about all the things the teens are going through and difficulties, and all, a lot of them are going through it. Born-again believers in Christ, they're going through it. Christians aren't spared from that. But it's hope. As eyes on Christ, you will finish the race. You'll finish strong. It's an identity crisis. It's too much self-reflection. And where do you think that comes from? These magazines, you know, body shaming, women. You know, you got to look this way. You got to dress that way. You got to, they're doing that body shaming stuff. And then they start to think, well, what's wrong with me if they don't look the way these magazines look? What does that cause you to do? It causes you to question and what does it really cause you to question? It produces an insecurity. But where does that cause, it cause you to question your identity? Is something wrong with you? And then men, they do the same thing. Well, you know, you need this, you need more testosterone, you know, take this milkshake and you can look like the Hulk, you know, or whatever. I mean, what are we doing? What are we selling to these kids and these young people? And they're buying it. And yet suicide rates are high. All the, and, and, and I'm just waiting for... Somebody that's smart enough to step back for a minute and go, wait a minute. Do we see the correlation here? Do we see what's happening? It's an identity crisis. That's the problem. It's who they are in themselves, not who they are in Christ Jesus. Because the minute you look at it in Christ Jesus, you're a son of God. You're a prince. Ladies, you're the daughter of the king. You're beautiful and beloved. You are perfect the way you are. But boy, he's, the enemy's a liar, and he's a father of all lies, and he tries to convince them. And, they, and, and, and it, I don't want to say it's a lack of intelligence. It's, I don't want to put it that way, but it's a lack of understanding. And then the minute they begin to come to that understanding, those feelings, they begin to fall away. No, the feelings change. What do they become then? Then it's the, the battle of you're not good enough. You know, as you, we get older, right, guys and ladies, you know? Are we doing enough for Christ? All those other things that he tries to attack us on that are lies from the pit of hell. But that, unfortunately, that does require us to have a little bit of, I don't want to use the word common sense, but a little bit of study the word of God so we see the pattern and be able to step back and go, I see what's happening here. Otherwise, you know what can happen? You can actually be deceived and fooled, as we read earlier. You can be fooled and deceived and think you actually know 
what's really going on. And that's even more dangerous because that's, that's not a good sign of intelligence. That's a, that's a sign of um, a potential for pride and the fall that will come before that. And God wants to keep us away from that. He wants to heal us and restore us. And if we're honest in here, every one of us has gone through that. Every one of us in here has gone through that moment when we wonder, do our lives matter? What are we doing? And you'd all be liars if you said it was. You didn't, because you know you do. The difference is we give it over to God. There's nothing wrong with any one of us. There's no one that's mental and nothing like that. What we have done is we have learned what it is to submit to Jesus, to put him in the sovereign place that he belongs, to recognize that, and to give all glory, honor, and praise to the one true God. And that's exactly what Paul says when we pray for his coming, when we get our eyes focused on his coming, when we celebrate communion, this do, do this for me. He goes back in, in the book of uh, Acts, or 1 Corinthians, excuse me, 11, and he turns around and says, and when you do this, you also focus on what? You, you turn around and you're telling people, there are other, uh, other people about what? His coming. Keeping your eyes on Jesus protects you from the things of this world. It really does. It renews the mind, washes the heart and mind. So friends, I'm going to leave you with that here this morning. Next week, we'll come in in chapter, uh, chapter four. We're going to be studying again uh, harpazo. We're going to go into the Greek words parousia, the coming, uh, the rapture. Uh, the rapture is just Latin. Uh, if we had Latin Bibles, we'd be saying ra uh, rapture. We use uh, Greek Bibles or English translated from Greek. We use harpazo. But we're going to come through and we're going to study these things because he's drawing our attention to the coming. But in chapter 4, they have a question. This is a young church. And I wonder how many of us even understand the answer biblically already here. He's going to say, well, what happens, Paul? Because you were with us a few months ago when this all went down. Christ hasn't come yet. God bless you. What happens to those that have died in between time? When we know 2 Corinthians 5.8, absent with the body, present with the Lord. But he's going to actually explain and he actually did it right here. I don't know if you guys caught it in verse 13, our, our last verse where he says, with all his saints. Did you catch that? So many people skip over that. Who is the Hagios? Who's the saints? You and I. It's not the little statues with the bobbly heads sitting on your dashboard, right? That's not who the saints are. Peace had coming with the saints. That means that the New Testament saints that have died, right, before Christ's coming, are coming back with Jesus where, where we're caught up in the air. And he gives that illusion, an illustration here, and we're going to read it next week where he says, and the dead in Christ rise first, talking about the bodies, right? He's, but he's also talking about progression. These things can't be uh, misunderstood as he's talking about first coming, second coming, as far as uh, when he came to, you know, 2,000 years ago and he's coming again. This can't be confused with the rapture, which is coming imminently, anytime. And then, uh, certainly his second coming, physically touching down on earth, again, imminently coming as well. It, it can't be confused because he's going to pull out the Greek words here in verse 15 and verse 17 of chapter 4, and we're going to study it. And we're going to look at the Greek, and he's going to make it very clear that this also is going to be a comfort to them, keeping our eyes on Jesus. Maranatha, friends, Maranatha. Amen? Let's stand and pray. Let's pray. Father, we come before you right now, and we thank you, Jesus, wholeheartedly in our, our hearts, our minds, Lord. We, we worship you and bless you in all of our strength and ability. Thank you for anointing your word here this morning and going before us. This has, Lord, been certainly a full meal that you've prepared for your flock here this morning, and you've anointed and sent before us. Lord, I pray we did feast, and I pray you would seal this into our hearts, Lord, that we would walk out of here stuffed like uh, even more than a turkey dinner, Lord. And God, I know you're going to create these divine appointments because, Lord, the passages you've had us in and the comfort that you're bringing to Thessalonica certainly is extended to us 2,000 years later in this Harrisburg, West Shore, East Shore area, Lord. And the work you're going to do in the body of Christ and, and to encourage for the days ahead, and that we need to keep our eyes on you, Jesus. If we just keep our eyes on you and you're coming, 
Lord, we will experience this holiness, this set apart before God and our Father, for before you, Father. Thank you for establishing our hearts here this morning. We praise you, we worship you, and we give you all the glory and honor in your holy name, Jesus Christ, and all God's people pray, amen. God bless you. I love you all. And if you need prayer or anything else, please come up. I'm, I'm here to pray.